If you could change one thing about yourself or about your life, what would it be? If God came to you like he came to Solomon and said, ask what I shall give thee, what would you say? What would you ask God for? Solomon asked for wisdom, and God gave him not only wisdom and an understanding heart, but also riches, honor, and the promise of a long life if he kept God's commandments. It is an interesting thought experiment to imagine yourself in Solomon's position, uh, to be king for a day or a year or longer. What would it be like to have God's blessing in such great measure, to possess wisdom, to have wealth and power and a healthy body? Who wouldn't want those things that seem to make life easier and more pleasurable? Well, one of the chief purposes of Mark's gospel is to portray for us what a king ought to be, what a king ought to be. The gospel of Mark is a revelation of Jesus Christ as the true son of David and therefore as a new and more faithful King Solomon. Already, Mark has emphasized this aspect of Christ's kingship through seeing him fighting with wild beasts in the wilderness. We saw that in Mark 1. We've seen his showdowns with the Pharisees, his defense of his disciples. And Mark has drawn many other parallels between the life of David as he was hunted by Saul and the life of Jesus as he is hunted by Herod, by demons, and by those who conspire to murder him. The life of Jesus after his baptism, after his anointing, his ordination, is the life of a wanted man. Just as David was anointed long before he ever reigned in Jerusalem, so also Jesus in his earthly ministry. And here, for the first time in Mark's gospel, we are told exactly where he is going. He is going to Jerusalem to die and rise again. That is the path the King of Kings walks for his people. And so what we have in the life of Jesus is the pattern, the pattern for how authority is to be wielded in this world. If you have any authority over someone else, whether as a governor, a boss, a manager, a teacher, a parent, or even if you're just an older sibling, whatever sphere of authority God has given you, however small or large, Jesus gives us the pattern for how to wield that authority well. What is authority for? What is the gift of kingship for? What is a leader or ruler supposed to look like? Well, Jesus is giving his disciples the answers to these questions because they are going to lead and rule the church. They're going to be the foundation for God's kingdom. So as we walk through this text, let us consider how we might imitate Christ's actions and obey his words. I'll give you the outline of our text this morning. Uh, it could be divided into uh, three sections here. In verses 32 to 34, uh, Jesus foretells his future death and resurrection. And then in verses 35 to 40, James and John ask Jesus to give them honor and authority. And then in verses 41 to 45, Jesus explains the purpose for his coming to earth. So let's walk through our text now, starting in verse 32. It says, And they were in the way going up to Jerusalem, and Jesus went before them, and they were amazed. And as they followed, they were afraid. 
So notice, first of all, that a king goes before his people. A king goes before his people. Mark wants us to know that while they are uh, making this pilgrimage to Jerusalem on their way to celebrate uh, the Passover festival, it is Jesus who, quote, went before them. Jesus is zealous to accomplish his task. He is a man on a mission, and his sole desire is to do the will of his Father. When leaders lack this kind of single-minded conviction, it is easy to grow idle. It is easy to go astray. And in the worst cases, like King David, some men abdicate their role as commander-in-chief, and they delegate certain tasks that ought not to be delegated. And they choose to stay back and lounge in their palace. This is a real temptation for anyone who has been given power and authority. You are tempted to sit and be ministered to rather than to get out in front and minister to your people. David abdicated. He stayed behind. And what did that lead to? Adultery, murder, and the fall of the kingdom. But what does Jesus do? Jesus arises and he goes before his disciples and they follow him in fear and amazement. Well, why are they amazed? We are not told exactly why, but perhaps they are perplexed why his face is now set like flint to go to Jerusalem. Or perhaps it is because he just said in the verse prior that the first shall be last and the last first. And now here he goes first in front of them. This is a real turning point in Jesus' ministry, And Jesus tells them for a third time what is going to happen to him. So continuing, verse 32b through verse 34. And he took again the twelve and began to tell them what things should happen unto him, saying, Behold, we go up to Jerusalem, and the Son of Man shall be delivered unto the chief priests and the scribes, and they shall condemn him to death, and shall deliver him to the Gentiles. And they shall mock him, and scourge him, and spit upon him, and kill him, and the third day he shall rise again. So what does a king do for his people? In what sense is a king first? Well, he goes first, he goes before them as a shepherd goes before his sheep. He is the first to go into danger, and because he is the tip of the spear, he also suffers first and foremost. In this case, the wolves are the chief priests, scribes, and Gentiles. And because they are hungry for the flesh of the righteous, Jesus is going to be mocked, scourged, spit upon, and slaughtered. And it is only after a brutal crucifixion that he will rise again. That is the work that Jesus knows is in front of him. And yet he is zealous to accomplish that work. Love compels him to continue to go to Jerusalem knowing that this is what awaits him. And yet, despite these very plain words to his disciples, uh, the disciples clearly continue to not understand. They are still thinking of the kingdom in earthly and carnal terms. This is illustrated by what happens in the next scene. So verse 35, and James and John, the sons of Zebedee, come unto him saying, Master, we would that thou shouldest do for us whatsoever we shall desire. So here are the two men who are in Jesus' inner ring. So Peter, James, and John, those are kind of the inner three. They got to go see the transfiguration. None of the other disciples have seen that. And here they come to Jesus right after he said, hey, I'm going to go suffer and die. And and they're asking for a blank check to get from Jesus whatsoever they desire. 
So their mindset after hearing of his imminent death and resurrection is, hmm, what can I get out of this? Not what can I give to help Jesus? So despite Jesus having just rebuked them for arguing over who should be the greatest, we saw that in Mark 9, the disciples clearly have not given up that contest. And James and John are intent on winning these two sons of thunder. Continuing verses 36 and 37, and Jesus said unto them, what would ye that I should do for you? They said unto him, grant unto us that we may sit one on thy right hand and the other on thy left hand in thy glory. So this is the ask to sit on either side of Christ in glory. That, you know, of all the things, what could you want? Um, That's what they want. That's what they want. They want to be exalted with Jesus in the highest possible places of honor. Well, how does Jesus respond to such a lofty request? Verse 38. But Jesus said unto them, Ye know not what ye ask. Can ye drink of the cup that I drink of, and be baptized with the baptism that I am baptized with? So James and John are kind of like uh, they're kind of like two toddlers who want to drive their dad's a sports car, right? If you gave them the keys, <laughs> okay, uh, their feet would not be able to reach the pedals, right? They, they would not be able to get it started. They have an overinflated view of their own abilities, right? What they imagine they can do is totally beyond them. So Jesus says to them, uh, you don't know what you're asking, right? That, that's actually a very pious good thing to ask. What they ask is actually probably a lot more pious than most of the things that we would ask. Like, you know, I wish I was a foot taller. I wish I was a baller, whatever it is, <laughs> right? They, but they say, I want to be close, as close to you as possible in your kingdom, right? On the surface, that's a pretty good ask for them to make. And yet Jesus says, you don't, you don't really know what you're asking. James and John are only thinking about the laurels of victory. They're only thinking about, you know, the post-game interview and the praise that they get and all the endorsements that they get for being, you know, right next to Jesus as king. What they are not thinking about is all of the responsibilities and duties that come with such a position. Think, who is qualified to be Christ's counselor, to sit at his right hand and his left hand? Well, this is one of those instances well, where if you regard Jesus as a mere man, you might think yourself just below him, right? He's, he's great. He's a wonderful teacher. He's on a mission. He's very imitatable. And yeah, I could sit on his right hand or his left. This is how the disciples are thinking. They fail to recognize that what they are asking in reality is to sit next to God and give God advice. And of course, none of us have ever done that, right? <laughs> they, they, that's what they're asking. Which, as you know, from other places in Scripture, is something that no man can actually do, right? No man can give counsel to God. Although at times... God does invite certain men like Abraham, like Moses, like his prophets to deliberate uh, with him over his actions. So Paul says this in Romans eleven thirty four, quoting Isaiah 40, verse 13, for who has known the mind of the Lord or who has become his counselor? Right. And the answer is no one. 
So there is a sense, a very real sense, the most realist sense, in which no man can give advice or counsel to God. And yet, God condescends to reveal certain truths to his prophets and the apostles. This whole three-year training program that the disciples are living through is Christ training them to eventually exercise his authority when he ascends to heaven. But the disciples have yet to connect the dots. They are still thinking just on the worldly plane. So Jesus asks James and John, are you able to drink the same cup and receive the same baptism as me? Both of which are symbols for judgment and death. So the cup refers to the cup of salvation, the wine of God's judgment. Baptism refers to the ordination for death, the washing of the sacrificial animal before it is placed upon the altar. And who is Jesus? Well, he is the Lamb of God who offers himself for the life of the world. And before he is enthroned as king, before he is placed upon the altar as an offering for sin, he must drink the cup and be baptized into death. Can James and John do the same? Verse 39 and 40. And they said unto him, we can. And Jesus said unto them, ye shall indeed drink of the cup that I drink of. And with the baptism that I am baptized with all shall ye be baptized. But to sit on my right hand and on my left hand is not mine to give, but it shall be given to them for whom it is prepared. So despite James and John not really knowing what they are asking for, they believe they are qualified. They can drink the same cup and they can receive the same baptism as Jesus. And while in their present state, they are certainly not able as will be seen when all of the disciples scatter and hide, scared. That, that's what's going to happen in Mark 14. Jesus knows that eventually, after the Holy Spirit is poured out, indeed, these disciples will drink the same cup and receive the same baptism and will suffer death for Christ. So there's this interesting uh, interplay in Mark's gospel. It's kind of like with the rich young ruler where... The rich young ruler, remember he calls Jesus good, not knowing that Jesus is, is God and is like God, he is goodness itself. James and John likewise speak truer than they even know or intend. Right? This, this is the irony that's woven all through Mark's gospel. So tradition holds that John, he was eventually boiled alive in oil. They tried to kill him, but he survived. Um, and then he was exiled to Patmos. As for James, Acts 12 actually records his martyrdom. It says that Herod Agrippa killed James, the brother of John, with the sword. So just as Jesus foretold, both of these men and all the apostles would suffer and die for Christ. But nevertheless, to sit at his right hand or his left is not something that Jesus gives out according to the flesh. Uh, James and John were almost certainly Jesus' first cousins. And these places of honor, Jesus wants them to know, are not given out according to any kind of blood relation, but rather according to God's predestination and man's true merit. Now, hearing of James and John's request, uh, the rest of the disciples are made envious and angry. Verses 41 to 45 says, And when the ten heard it, they began to be much displeased with James and John. But Jesus called them to him and saith unto them, 
Ye know that they which are accounted to rule over the Gentiles exercise lordship over them, and their great ones exercise authority upon them. But so shall it not be among you. But whosoever will be great among you shall be your minister. And whosoever of you will be the chiefest shall be servant of all. For even the Son of Man came not to be ministered unto, but to minister, and to give his life a ransom for many. How do you cut the cord of envy that is in every human heart? The disciples here are much displeased, not because they love Jesus, but because James and John asked for something that they all want. And by the way, if you read Matthew's version of this account, they actually have their mom ask Jesus. Okay, So I don't know if that makes it worse or better, but you can imagine 12 guys and then, you know, one of the kids' moms who's really close with Jesus' mom is the one asking, hey, can they sit at your right and left? It's like, what are the other 10 going to think? Like, that's, that's such a low move, right? So in the disciples' mind, uh, in their minds, there's only two seats up for grabs. There's two open cabinet positions as chief advisor to the king, but there are 12 of them. And it is this kind of scarcity mindset, this kind of zero-sum thinking and personal glory chasing that Jesus comes to bring an end to. Well, how does Jesus do this? Well, he does this first by dying for our sins of envy, our pettiness, the ways we are jealous, right? You, you have this same scene play out in the workplace. If you know, someone gets fired or someone gets promoted, suddenly everyone else is like, oh, who's going who's gonna to get that position? And then people start acting all funny. Okay, this this is just human nature. Well, how does Jesus bring an end to this? Well, first, he gives us a way to confess and get rid of that envy that is inside of us. He gives us a way to renounce our desire, to desire him as our highest good, so that we can actually desire some of these lesser good things, like it would be good to be promoted or get a raise or whatever. But you have to have God as your highest good, otherwise... You're going to make that thing into the ultimate thing. And that is going to actually make you very unhappy. This is how envy uh, uh, grows in us and becomes more and more wicked. So Jesus does this first by dying for our sins of envy, jealousy, vain glory. And second, he brings an end to it by calling his church to imitate his life as a servant of all. So what is the essence of being a king? What is the essence of being a lord, a master, a ruler, a boss? Well, it is to bear in yourself the burdens and the sins and the needs of all those under your authority. Because as far as your authority extends, so also your responsibility and duty before the Lord. In scripture, authority is portrayed as a burden that the king or the high priest or the prophet uh, carries on his shoulders. So we actually see uh, Aaron, the high priest, he literally wears a heavy onyx uh, gold encrusted stone on each shoulder that has the tribes of Israel inscribed upon it. Moreover, he wears on his chest this heavy golden breastplate with a, a stone for each of the tribes. He keeps them close to his heart. That is the priestly burden, and that is a very heavy weight. Likewise, Moses, who functions as prophet, priest, and king, this is what he says to God in Numbers 11. I am not able to bear all this people alone because it is too heavy for me. And if thou deal thus with me, 
Kill me, I pray thee, out of hand, if I have found favor in thy sight, and let me not see my wretchedness. The burden that Moses felt as ruler over such a rebellious nation as Israel was so heavy that he asked God to kill him and relieve him of that duty. He essentially says to God, God, if you really love me, you will kill me. Okay? I cannot carry these people and their constant sins. Well, what does God do? Well, he comes down. He doesn't kill Moses. <laughs> he comes down and he... he takes a portion of that burden that was just resting on Moses and he distributes it amongst 70 other men, okay? So, you know, Moses is carrying what 70 other men eventually carry at this point in the story. So this is the burden of responsibility. And it is this burden of uh, responsibility that the disciples are not thinking about at all, right? So to take the toddler again, all they think about is, I want to go fast in the car. They're not thinking about, you know, the insurance for, for the thing, right? Or what it costs to actually fix it when you crash that into a tree, okay? So that's just a very distant analogy to this, but you get the idea. So they are thinking of the kingdom still in very earthly terms. And Jesus says they are thinking basically just like the Gentiles, just like all the worldlings do. What then does lordship and authority positively look like in God's kingdom? Well, it looks like loving service. It looks a little bit like slavery. It looks like stooping low and bearing up under the heavy burden of other people's problems and doing them good even when they think that you are doing them harm. This is one of the most difficult things about Leadership. It's also, it's like, this is what parenting is, right? The kid, the kid does not like the thing that is good for them, but you know, you know better than them. And so they think you hate them, but actually you love them. And this is what you have to do if you're in any position of authority, if you're an employer, a boss, whatever it is. If you're a, a governor, if you're the president, oh, the Lord be with you, right? That's why we pray for, pre- for the president, for our leaders every single week, right? It is a heavy burden that comes with authority. So service is not doing just whatsoever your inferiors demand of you. Servant lordship, servant lordship is doing whatsoever God commands of you, which is to owe no no man anything but to love him. So service is not just catering to people's demands, it's catering to God's commands for what you are to do to them. So there are guardrails to this. Isn't this exactly what Christ has done for us, right? He has done the will of his Father. Jesus does not ever cater to our petty and selfish demands. But he does always, in every instance, do what is most good for us. Do you believe that, right? If God is your Father, if Christ is your Lord, he only ever does to you, he only ever permits and allows into your life those things that are going to be good for you. And if you can learn to kiss the rod of discipline, well, you're actually going to start to grow up. You're actually going to be able to wield that rod yourself one day. So Jesus does not cater to our selfish demands, but he does always what is most good for us. Jesus gladly and joyfully assumes responsibility for the sins of the whole world, none of which he committed. What Moses could not carry for one nation, Jesus picks up and carries for every nation throughout all time. 
Christ bears on his kingly, priestly, and prophetic shoulders the weight of the world's sins. For this is why he came, not to be ministered unto, but to minister and to give his life a ransom for many. So this is the servant lordship model that Jesus wants the church, his disciples, to imitate. Because they are the foundation for his kingdom. Their witness is going to be the beginning of Christ's everlasting kingdom. And so there is this really deep irony to the disciples jockeying for power in that uh, they're going to receive from Jesus even greater authority than they are aspiring towards at this moment. So Jesus has already told them, remember, that they're going to sit on 12 thrones judging the 12 tribes of Israel. And while they presently conceive of those thrones in earthly temporal terms as ruling like the Gentiles rule, in actuality, their thrones are spiritual and heavenly and everlasting. Listen to what Revelation 21.14 says. It's describing the new Jerusalem and it says, And the wall of the city had 12 foundations, and in them the names of the 12 apostles of the Lamb. Christ is the chief cornerstone, and the apostles are the glorious foundation that the heavenly city shall be built upon. And what do foundations do? They bear weight. What do kings do? They bear the weight and the burdens of their people. And it is this bearing of heavy weight that actually is our glory. And I've told you this before, but I'll tell you again, that in Hebrew, uh, the word for heavy and glory is the exact same word. It's this Hebrew word, kavod. So uh, in scripture, gold is one of those things. Gold is a heavy um, metal, and gold is kavod, and it's also glorious. It's shiny. It's beautiful. We see when Abraham's flocks multiply and his possessions increase, he becomes, it says, more kavod, more weighty, more wealthy. So God is the one, of course, who is supremely kavod, which is why we speak of the weight of his glory or the gravity of his presence. And this idea of kavod really captures this idea of what it means to be a king, because a king is glorious. A king is kavod. This is what kavod is. It is to have honor that is married with duty. It is to have authority that is married with responsibility. It is to have weight and distinction that is married with humble service. Hebrews 1.3 uh, says that Jesus is, quote, the brightness of God's glory. Right? Jesus is God's kavod. And so the path to glory, the path to honor and immortality, is always the path of Christ, which is cross before crown, pain before pleasure, humiliation before exaltation. That is what kavod means. I want to close with uh, just a couple points of application for us from this text. First point. Serving others rarely feels glorious but it is glorious in the eyes of God. Serving others rarely feels glorious, but it is glorious in the eyes of God. Uh, serving others does not usually feel good in the moment uh, or even feel like some great heroic act. The kind of service Jesus commands of us is often the kind of service that goes unappreciated, unseen, 
and at times can feel very insignificant and even futile. Right? So, you know, you wash the dishes so that they can get dirty again, so that you have to wash them again, so that they can get dirty again. <laughs> and on and on and on. This is Solomon's vanity of vanities, right? But that that futile, vain service is glorious in the eyes of God. It's precious in the eyes of God. So when you are frustrated or tired or annoyed by other people's problems, and when it starts to feel heavy, um, that is a sign that you're exactly where God wants you to be. And he has given you in those people and in their problems a great opportunity to actually become kavod. If you really want to be glorious like God, which all of us should aspire to be, uh, the glory will not come to you apart from difficulty. So when you are going through a hard season, and when you feel that burden upon your shoulders or the weight and sorrow in your heart, receive those trials like Christ did. Receive those trials as God's gift to make you to become more like him, to make you more glorious, to make you shine like he does. And ask God to help you wear that crown of thorns with a good attitude. That's number one. Number two, when you serve others, remember you are serving the Lord Jesus. When you serve others, you are serving the Lord Jesus. So how do you actually stay motivated to serve uh, often thankless sinners? How do you stoop low and wash people's feet even when they are spitting in your face and criticizing you? Well, Jesus says in Matthew 25, when he judges between the sheep and the goats, that inasmuch as you serve others, you're actually serving the king himself. Listen to Matthew 25, 35 to 40. He says, for I was hungry and you gave me food. I was thirsty and you gave me drink. I was a stranger and you took me in. I was naked and you clothed me. I was sick and you visited me. I was in prison and you came to me. Then the righteous will answer him saying, Lord, when did we see you hungry and feed you or thirsty and give you drink and so forth? And the king will answer and say to them, assuredly, I say to you, inasmuch as you did it to one of the least of these, my brethren, you did it to me. So when you are serving fussy children or your angry husband or your nagging wife or your very unreasonable boss or your very irresponsible employees, remember that they are the Lord Jesus. That's Jesus. Your service to them is as serving Jesus Christ himself. That really changes things, right? <laughs> You're like, okay, they're definitely not. <laughs> but what, what happens at the final judgment? The righteous say, when did we ever do that? And Jesus says, when you were doing it for all of those, my brethren, your service to them is as serving the king himself. And what they may not see or appreciate or even like about your service, God sees and God appreciates and God shall reward. This is why the Apostle Paul can say in Ephesians 6, servants, referring to just earthly servants, employees and, and slaves, servants, be obedient to those who are your masters according to the flesh with fear and trembling, in sincerity of heart as to Christ, not with eye service as men pleasers, but as bond servants of Christ, doing the will of God from the heart, 
with good will, doing service as to the Lord and not to men, knowing that whatever good anyone does, he will receive the same from the Lord, whether he is a slave or free. When we begin to see in one another that we are serving Christ himself, we can overlook their many faults. We can cover many of their sins in love and owe them nothing but to love them just as Christ has loved us. So who has God called you to serve? See in them the Lord Jesus himself because he is watching and he is going to reward every man what is his due. I'll close with this. When you are faithful in the little things, God does make you a ruler over more, over much. But there comes a point in every faithful Christian's life when they must die to the gifts that God has given them in times past. There is a time where every Christian must die to the gifts God has given them in order to receive from him something even greater. Consider Abraham. Abraham was given this miraculous gift of a son in Isaac. And then what does God do? He asks him to give it up. He asks Abraham to die to the gift. And it is that death to the gift and the passing of that test, that trial of his faith, that made Abraham into the father of all the faithful. He dies to the gift so that he can become more kavod. This is the pattern of all the great saints. God promises us a blessing. He gives us a promise. We wait for it in faith. We wait for it with fervent prayer. We wrestle with him like Jacob wrestled with the angel, and eventually we receive the gift. But then God asks for it back because he wants to give us something even greater. What does Paul say? He says the Christian life is God taking us from one degree of glory to another, from kavod to kavod. But what is in between each of those glory peaks? Well, there is a death. We have to die to what he has already given. We must put everything on the altar again. We must drink the cup until finally, at life's end, we die for real. But by then, we have had plenty of practice in dying. And we know what waits for us on the other side. Something greater. Resurrection and glory. So die to the gift. You who are in authority, die for your people. Become a priest and king unto God. In the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Amen.